Hey guys, how's it going? This is T. And I just wanted to say in this episode, I had misread a story about the creators of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I was skimming different articles to try to do some quick background research before we did the episode. And I misread one of the articles and then I repeated the misinformation within the episode. So just for clarification, Jimmy Fails and Joe Talbot, the two people whose story uh, was the basis for Last Black Man in San Francisco, they did not, in fact, go to high school together. They were not both in performing arts high school together. Uh, I believe Joe Talbot was the one who actually went to uh, performing arts high school and dropped out. And I'm not sure where Jimmy Fails went to high school. But regardless of who went to performing arts high school, it wasn't the both of them there together. And that's a mistake on my part. I was combining and mixing up different articles in some hasty research I was doing. So when that part comes up, just keep that in mind that it's actually a mistake. I just felt that editing that part out would have ruined the continuity and flow of the conversation. So I chose to leave it in and just leave this correction there instead. All right. And without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, this is Champagne Sharks. How's it going? This is T. Uh, Trevor, you can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. But more importantly, forget finding me on Twitter. Find the Patreon. That's where the money is. That's where it goes. Patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. You get access to all the back episodes that are not free. So at this point, it's like a hundred. It's like a hundred episodes that you will instantly get access to as a patron. And also there's a Discord where you can talk to other fans of the show and chop it up and where we're going to have guests start doing Q and A's and stuff like that. There's a newsletter that's going to be available to the patrons. And also you'll just be supporting what we do, which is really appreciated and not taken for granted. And we have with us a bunch of people. So we're going to go in alphabetical order. So let's start with Laron. Tell the people uh, who you are and anything that you think they should know about you. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Laron L. Barton. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer, speaker living in San Francisco, California from uh, from Kansas City. I write essays uh, about racism, or white white supremacy, politics, mass incarceration. I've been writing a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff about uh, business in terms of how uh, dis- uh, how discrimination is within is within tech. Since I live in in, Sil- in Silicon Valley, I'm a TEDx speaker, man, and I'm I'm super duper excited to be on this uh, podcast. It's uh, definitely one of my favorites, so definitely honored. I appreciate that. And uh, I forgot, did you drop your website address or no? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's uh, you you can find my work at LaronBarton.com. That's L-E-R-O-N-B-A-R-T-O-N. I'm also on Twitter at Mainline Laron. And uh, I'll probably be one of those hoteps that uh, that you all like or don't like ADOS. So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just being honest. Yeah, I've never seen an admitted uh, hotep on this show. I think. I mean, you know, it's crazy. Plenty dude. of so, uh, accusations. Uh, yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Go on. Well, you know, um, well, you know, it's, it's funny, man. It's like they've like somehow taken like a like a word that's supposed to be positive within circles and in, in the African community, and they just somehow brandished it as just some just yeah, negative. Yeah, it's slur. one of those and things with like, a new look, meaning. Yeah, the new meaning has ended up becoming normal meaning. So it's kind of weird. It's kind of become a pejorative and the new meaning has uh, caught on. But I'm assuming that you're claiming it from the old meaning and not (laughs) that new. Yeah, (laughs) I mean... I mean, uh, uh, well, uh, well, you know, like, uh, so T, like, I knew that I was speaking some some real stuff because, like, you know, I, I was, dude, like, I was, uh, I was criticizing uh, the uh, the one young lady who was messing with with Rob Kardashian. It's, it's like people were like celebrating, like, you know, her her quote unquote coming up, and I and I'm all like, look, like, yo, like, you know, what she's doing is just acting scandalous. I'm, uh, I mean, it's like, yo, like, you know, she's a mom, yo, like, shouldn't she be 
I mean, I don't know, just, and, and, and so it's like, I had a bunch of folks saying, oh my God, um, he's a hotep. So I'm all like, all right. Well, yeah. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I think hotep has become just something that means like you disagree with, uh, intersectional talking points and anything under yep. that umbrella, you know? So I think probably a lot of our guests, I don't know if our next guest is, is considered a hotep. <laughs> um, Millie, are you a hotep? Are you, uh, are you considered an honorary hotep? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, should I be an honorary hotep? I think it's probably better not to be, but uh, tell the people who you are. And, okay, uh, in that case, I'm not. Uh, okay, well, hey guys, I'm Millie Cho. I'm a filmmaker in New York. Uh, I live in Brooklyn and I write, direct, and produce indie films. Uh, I met T through some good friends of mine at Plan A, uh, which is an online magazine on Asian American politics and discourse. Uh, some great content there. Please check us out. Uh, we're at planamag.com. Um, also, I'm on Twitter at one millicent Cho. Okay, and we have a returning guest. Since we're on the theme, I can ask you: Are you a self-identified uh, Hotep Matume? I mean, I, I say I'll say Hotep if it's if it's good, but you know, I I, I don't. <laughs> I am a Hotep. I'm not a Fotep. That's what I say. You know, okay. I don't. I, I I'm very much. <laughs> I'm very much against the rebranding of Hotep as a as a negative. You know. The negative word that's really a bad practice <laughs> yeah but i don't know if it could be reclaimed i don't know I, I feel like i feel like the ship has sailed that's one of those people that thought you know the word could be reclaimed but the propaganda has been very effective because they had episodes of what's it called dear black people it's been on yeah i think they mentioned it on she's gotta have it like a lot of these shows like they have a lot of shows that have you know successfully did they ever mention it on insecure um probably, probably. i'm not sure i stopped watching insecure after season one yes sort of that wow. but i feel like they, they would have uh said it. But yeah, they, I mean, they've they've said it by name to the point that I now hear like white people using the word hotep, using the new oh, uh, pejorative uh, version of it. Like, like, like that's their first exposure to it. And once the white people think something means something, it officially starts meaning that thing because then it's going to start appearing in their media and et cetera, et cetera. I totally agree with you. Uh, matter of fact, um, I, had a, uh, I, had a, I had a white woman jokingly asked Laron, um, are you a hotel? And I was like, oh, wow. uh, oh, I was like, okay, for one, that's racist. You, um, you can't say that. <laughs> B, yeah, I mean, it was so, so T, like, I, 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 one hundred percent agree with you. It's like, it's like once they got it, it's, it's a wrap. Yeah, once they got it, it's a wrap. And yeah, they start using it as an insult. Like I've had like white guys say, you know, sounds like you're being a hotel. But it's like you don't even know what a hotel is. Like what it really is. Like you know. Just because you read, like, you know, the liner notes to a Bell Hooks book, you know, you, you didn't read the book. It doesn't mean you're qualified <laughs> to, like, speak on stuff. It's very annoying. But, yeah, there's, an, there's another word that I've seen kind of fly uh, into white circles now. Now I've seen white people saying, pick me. Like, you're a pick me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And now they That's even, surprising. They even start calling each other pick me's. Like, you know, I, I seen like, uh, one white girl call another white girl pick me. That was like, this is so weird. Like. Y'all, okay, the, uh, the internet uh, has made nothing secret anymore. Every I'm sorry, uh, T. What, so can can I have the definitive definition of what a pick me is? Because I've seen this word be thrown around Twitter, and I'm like, oh, okay, what? Okay, what is it exactly? I would say a, a pick me. Do you mean what people say it means, or what when you observe it in practice actually means? Because to me, what uh, both. Okay, because to me, what they yeah. say it means is they say <laughs> that it's someone who's what they also call a patriarchal princess who is. I know it mostly from black circles. That's where it started. Where you're basically well, first one of the pretenses is that uh, black men are the white men of or the white people of black people, such that anything in defense of black men. You're the same as a white woman who votes for Trump or supports Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice, or, you know, does all this stuff. So pick me is already kind of based in this kind of false premise that black men practice patriarchy and have like real tangible uh, power and stuff as opposed to, you know, what the truth is, which is they're kind of being left behind. Right. So what they claim is that it's like black women who kind of betray other black women in order to side with the so-called power of black men. And I don't know what power we have to bestow, you know, being that a lot of us are in prison or doing worse in the workforce. But, you know, that's the premise that, you know, black men are win are winning like white men are winning within their community. And that uh, a pick me is someone who's like kissing up to black men in hopes that a black man will notice them and crown them. So it's pick me, pick me. Like, look, I'm I'm defending black just, men, you know, pick me. Yeah, I'm down. Right. And it's kind I'm of down. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's weirdly insulting you know, like, because I just want to know like, like yeah. uh, the only way uh oh, no. black woman can say something nice about a black man or say something self-critical 
about black women because they'll they'll get this label if they say anything that they, that they disagree with feminist intersectional feminism or something. So this is the idea that in no way can it be sincere. Right. The only way you have this opinion is you're motivated by trying to have it's kind of like when they when they tell a, a male feminist that oh you're just trying to get laid that's the only reason you could possibly be a feminist like you know in a way it almost invalidates the idea that right there is a mm-hmm. good faith defense of women and that it's the reverse of that but in practice pick me just means i said something and you didn't reply with a sassy approval gif like you challenged me at some point this is just what i'm going to call you <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that just sounds so childish but we it are is. actually here about uh the last black man in san francisco and i was kind of more neutral on this than some of our analysts and uh, Laron yourself, I have no idea what your take is. So I have no idea where you're coming from. So I'm not sure where the balance of like and dislike is on this. But since Laron, you are the wild card, I will let you lead off. Plus, being that you're actually living in San Francisco, I feel it's only right. Let you lead off with what you thought of the movie. Right. And so I saw the movie. Well, so I wanted to see the movie, uh, uh, you know, like right before we, we talk so it could be really fresh. I know that Millie said that she saw it twice. So, so I was like, wow, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? But, yeah. but uh, so, man, it's a lot of things to, to say about this movie. First off, I'm, I'm still trying to process it. Um, I don't really know what to think of it. I'll say that the two main characters, the actors are really, are really, really good. I, you know, I, I thought the main character, I believe the fellow's name is Jimmy. I thought his story was pretty interesting. I was, I was actually more interested in his friend's story, uh, Montgomery. Uh, the, the film is shot beautifully. I mean, you you know from from Jump Street, this is you know sort of made with an artistic flair. It starts, I believe, in in Hunter in Hunter's Point. And one of the things that I liked from Jump Street was that they focused on the toxicity of that area. You know, when I uh, when I moved to San Francisco back in in 2013, one of the things that I immediately heard of was that uh, there has been companies dumping waste in the Hunter's Point area, and that you know some of the water may not be safe. And of course, you know, that area is populated by, uh, by black people. So they definitely highlight that the street preacher in the beginning, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty real. And the fact that, you know, the, the movie starts with starts with that kind of lets you know that it's really centered around black folks. It's very realistic in the way that it portrays white people in relation to black people. And I thought that was really important. How when they skateboard out of Hunter's Point to sort of the center of the city and they're the first shot, you see like the tech bro on his on his phone and he's and he's looking at the two with sort of like this weird disgust and you see the white guy running running down the street. Hey man, take take me with you, you know. San Francisco has a real big problem with uh, with people who are mentally disturbed and sort of mentally disabled, just, you know, sort of like walking the street like it's nothing to see some to see some dude just like rambling to uh, to himself. Right. Yeah. And, you know, something that made me think of, too, uh, also that scene with the naked guy sits next to him. Right. I've been to San Francisco (laughs) twice. That's real. Yeah. 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 And I'm and I'm not by any means an expert on San Francisco. And if even I can see that in my two short trips there then i think it's a real sign that it must happen a lot you know because i had that same thought (laughs) yeah yeah because i i heard those stories and i saw the pictures and everything and both times when i went there i went for like a week each time and i experienced it each time and there's like new york stories like somebody masturbating on the train you know that happens (laughs) but i have not seen that yet (laughs) yeah yeah exactly like I can go years without seeing that, but right. San Francisco, both times, one week each time, like a naked person or a rambling to themselves person happened each time, both. Dude, it's like um, where they were with the naked guy, that's a that's an area called, called the Castro, which is historically an LGBTQ area. And so it's nothing to just have, to just see old men such as that gentleman walking down the street, they'll have like a glittery sock on their penis and they're, and they're just... And, <laughs> And they're just like, <laughs> and they're just like walking down the street, and I'm like, okay, I mean, but you know, San Francisco still has that sort of, you know, freedom. But you know, Tima, Tima, uh, uh, and Millie, I-, I thought the movie was was really sad. 
more than anything. I mean, it was like it just had this overwhelmingly sad sadness to it. I mean, it's based around gent- gentrification, which housing is the most important, most talked about sort of, uh, you know, movement sort of issue. And just the fact that, I mean, man, there's I can go on and on about it, but, you know, I'd love to hear what everyone else thought about it, though. Yeah, um, you know what? Since we started with LeRon, let's just keep it in alphabetical order. So I'll let um, uh-huh. Millie, okay. if you uh, want to well, weigh in next. I guess I feel compelled to say that if you haven't, listeners, if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, there are spoilers ahead. <laughs> so oh, yeah, you might want to take a pause and, you know, get back to us when you uh, once you've seen the movie. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to talk briefly about what the movie's about, though? Oh, uh, yeah, that okay. too. Let That's me see fine. if I can yeah, talk I'll just the quickly about. try to summarize it and you guys please jump in, you know, um, if sure. I'm missing anything. So an actor named Jimmy Falls. Okay, so the movie is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It was directed by Joe Talbot and co-written by Talbot and this guy, Rob Share. Um, it stars an actor named Jimmy Fall- Fails as a character named Jimmy Fails the fourth. Also, uh, Jonathan Majors plays Jimmy's best friend, Montgomery, also known as Mont. And Danny Glover plays uh, Mont's uncle. Um, so Jimmy Fails is a is a young man who grew up in San Francisco. Um, he's multi-generational there. And his, we're led to believe that his grandfather built a Victorian mansion in the Fillmore district, but that the family lost the house over the years because of drugs and financial negligence. Um, so essentially, it's a story of a character who's trying to take back the farm. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair, yeah. fair yeah. assessment. And, and it's kind of like his relationship both to the house and the house as a proxy for his relationship to his family. Because I think like the house kind of represents his link to the past and his family and how he processes family history. So it's like the house is the goal, but the house, and if you guys disagree in any of my assessment, by all means, feel free to correct. But I feel like the house was also kind of a proxy for deeper issues, like his relationship to himself, to his right. father, to his family, um, family history Absolutely. and lineage. Right. I agree with you that. Know, and yeah. so yeah, far, so, so the, the reviews have been pretty positive, right? I mean, it, you know, it has a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, if that means anything to anyone. Damn, for real? You know, yeah, the reviews it's, it's themselves one bad review. have been largely positive. Um, I wrote down a few notes here. Quote, it's already one of the best movies of 2019, an instant classic. That was Rolling Stone. Manola Dargis of the New York Times said that it was a ravishing movie, an indelibly beautiful story of love, family, and loss in America. So, so far, people really seem to like the film. Um, And I think there are some good reasons why, you know, many of which you mentioned, Laron. I thought that the actors were good. Um, I really like Jimmy and Jonathan. I like their faces. I don't know if that's a weird note, but the thing is that if you're going to be staring at an actor's face for, at actors' faces for an hour and a half, you know, you want to be happy about that. You know, it's it's kind of weird, but once you actually said it, I kind of realized now that I like their faces too. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of see what you mean. Like, it sounds like a strange comment at first, but when I think about it, I know what you mean. Like, like they have very... First, the faces are distinct from each other, but their faces match yeah. the characters. And I thought their performances were, you know, really good. Like, subtle and believable. I thought that some of the camera work was interesting. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, you know, the tracking shots with Jimmy right. on his skateboard and Mont running alongside him. It's really good. I thought that was you interesting. Know, along with the poetic well. voiceover, you know, the emotion, the effect is really emotional and evocative. Um, and also, as you pointed out, Laurent, uh, they did a good job of capturing some of the texture of life in San Francisco, I think. Uh, the neighborhoods and the eccentric characters, uh, like the guy who was running around naked and then sat down at the bus stop. And also uh, the friend of Jimmy's who lives in the car. I love that guy. Uh, so to me, those were some of the pros. Uh, on the con side, I felt like there were a lot of sort of silly stereotypes. The hood kids and the neighbor, you know, hanging out right. uh, in front of the house. And it was kind of broad, which I guess is the, yeah, saying the same right. thing. Broad is a good way to put it. Thing. I felt that it was a white film posing as a black film. Wow, I, that's I interesting. I wasn't okay with that. Um, I, I went into the movie believing that the filmmakers were black. Only yeah, so to later yeah. discover right. after the movie that they weren't. And you know, it's funny. I felt hypocritical. I mean, I saw it, I saw it with Matume and Millie. So we left after and I was a lot more forgiving about the movie. And then Matume said that the creators were white. And it was interesting how I just instantly started reprocessing the movies. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. okay. And part right. of me felt that was kind of unfair. because I'm like, okay, 
if it's just a good movie or a bad movie, why should the person making it change my feeling? But somehow, I won't lie, it still did. Like, once I found out, because I was like, there's some things where I may not like it, but if it's genuine to your experience, like, you know, uh, like, say it's something about Black dysfunction, but... right you're telling the true story of yourself and you wrote it, then I might be like, who might invalidate your experience? But if I find out like two privileged white guys wrote it, now I'm thinking, okay, you're, you're drawing up, they're drawing on tropes. Like, what are you drawing this right. from? And, and yeah. You're, you know? you're also in the assessment yeah. process of the movie. It's like, I think a lot of times we have this thing. Did you like the movie? Immediately 30 seconds after, and that's going to be your, right. your reaction forever. Rather than there's movies that like, I liked more two days later, or I liked less three days later. And that's part of your assessment mm-hmm. process. And, and you know, cause I, I, I had said to, to T and Millie that, in the middle of the movie, I remembered that the director was white. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about it. I, just, I hadn't thought about it. And, and, and I mean, I, I can get I can get into my feelings on the movie a little later, but I, I wasn't having a good time and I was I was bothered by it. And then it hit me. I was like, I know now I realize why I'm being bothered. Yeah. By I this mean, I'm not film, saying that white you know? filmmakers right. can't make films about people of totally color agree. because they can. And they have M- made some great ones. Like Nothing But a Man is a great film made by, um, by Michael Romer, in my opinion. And he's a Black right. man. Oh, well, oh wow! Man. I didn't even I know, know that was. I didn't even know that was made by a white man. Yeah. And that is a great it's movie. A great film. Yeah, I've that never movie seen has that. such an that movie has such an authenticity to it that I recommended it to a lot of uh, other people, including black men, as an example of like you know a movie that really talks about that really touches on the humanity of black men and all this time i thought that was made by uh you're talking about the, the one with abby lincoln mm-hmm. and, and, and and ivan, ivan dixon yeah ivan dixon yeah that's made by a white guy really it yeah out. it's wow it, you can find I'll it out. i'll, I'll send i'll send a link to you to you guys i mean you can find it on youtube and it's a pretty good mm-hmm. it's a, it's a pretty okay. it's a pretty good copy but like it's a great yeah, film. Yeah, it's one of my fa- you know, but yeah, it's one of my yeah. it's one of my favorite films. I think it's one of the best films about like particularly about like uh black relationships yeah. and stuff and right. that's so really not shocking. saying yeah, that wow. white filmmakers can't make films about people of color, but I just think it's a problem when those films seem to demean and belittle their point of view a little bit. Right. Yeah, um, and one thing I like is that we gave an example of it done right yeah. because that's that's great. And I thank you for that Matume because I think that's a great movie to watch alongside this because it's there's not there's not tropes there. Like those are characters in that movie. They're human beings, mm-hmm. you know, in nothing but a man and there was a little bit of a two-dimensionalness to the way these people were crafted even though i didn't dislike it as much as uh millie and matume i think i might have been <laughs> based on what i'm hearing i think i'm a little closer to where you were uh Laron. but we haven't even let matume give his sure uh, point of view yet so i'll let matume um oh, oh, first okay so millie, when i say that you know the film demean their the the black character's point of view what i mean is that you know by the end of the movie we find out that you know the whole movie is about jimmy trying to get this house back right Right. but at the end of the movie we find out that not only did the house never belong to jimmy's family or i'm sorry uh, um, yeah yeah, you're right this was a little bit of an issue for me so not only did the house not belong to the family but which would be i think an acceptable revelation for the end of a movie i mean it wouldn't be that revelation that i wanted but i'm saying you know i can see that being a, leg- a legitimate tragic revelation on the part of a main character. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Can I just do a quick correction? Because I think I understood the plot a little differently. I thought it did belong to his family, but it was a lie about when it was created and who right. built it. Yeah. His yeah. Family no, no, no. You might be right about that. He thought Sorry. his grandfather yeah, yeah. built the house and he later learned that the, that his grandfather did not build the house at all. Um, And his family, um, um, didn't they, in fact, lose the house due to like, you know, taxes, drugs, mm-hmm. uh, drugs? We, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Through, through personal negligence exactly um and his dad um this uh the scene towards the end of the movie where where jimmy wanted his dad to admit what was going what, what was going on and his, his dad just kind of refused to do that yeah and what he wanted his dad to admit was that the grandfather never uh bought the house and and do you know what it felt like to me it felt like you know how uh white people like to laugh at black people when they talk about we were kings and queens back yeah. in africa or we did inventions and right there's even like racist trope where the white nationalists say uh we was kings that's the way to kind of make fun of uh black people who uh, right. have mm-hmm. this glorious vision of their past so when I was thinking the movie was done by black people, what I thought is that they were talking about don't over romanticize or be delusional about your past in the way someone like the anti-racist thinker Neely Foto talks about it. When Neely Foto says, you know, 
you have to be honest about where you come from and the situation sure. you're in if you're going right. to improve your situation. And when I thought it was coming from black guys, I kind of forgave it in that I thought, oh, what he's saying is just like he wants the father to be honest about how he lost the house, also honest about where the house came from. Like right. maybe this I thing where that. no one wants to look at how they got here. I thought it was kind of a personal uh, responsibility or personal right. um, realism. So, uh, yeah, um, so, it's al- so it was almost like the whole like thought of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, let's not blame, you know, racism, white supremacy mm-hmm. for, you know, oh, its hand. Oh, let's, oh, uh, oh, 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 yeah. I wasn't even going. I wasn't even going there. I see what you're saying there. But, but uh, let me let me just finish real quick because it's slightly different. What I'm about to say. Sure. I thought it was more like to fight white supremacy you have to be realistic about where you are in the system of white supremacy so that you can... But once I found out that it was by white people, then when I look back on it, it became reframed like you said it, which I didn't like, which is, oh, it's not anything to do with anything structurally wrong. It's just you guys are fuck-ups. And then it became a... We were kings and queens in Africa type of mocking to me. Like like it became like, you know, this is how white people see black people when they talk about themselves doing well and stuff it became instantly recharacterized that speech into a point of mocking or or a kind of critique on black people for blaming others and being delusional whereas before i was able to forgive it as a kind of we as a family have to be honest about what our weaknesses are if if we're gonna learn from this you know exactly i mean not only do we find out that jimmy jimmy's grandfather didn't build a house is that what we're agreeing is the fact but we find out that jimmy has known this all along and has been lying to himself and to his friends (laughs) here's the exact quote hang on just a minute he says i'm sorry i didn't tell you the truth i just wanted it to be true it felt so good you know direct quote from that character right so it just i don't know how else to read it it feels like we're being told that not only is jimmy a fraud but he knows it and he's known it all along right um so so i don't under i mean so that actually kind of throws me for uh, for a loop, Millie. It's like, well, if he knew he was a fraud, then why is he fighting so hard to keep a house that never really belonged? I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, just, I mean, I don't it doesn't know. make sense narratively exactly, yeah. either. It doesn't make you know, sense. It's definitely like have, it's one thing to get the rug pulled out from you as an audience member, as a member of the audience, but then another thing to kind of like <laughs> get the rug pulled out from under you and then fall backwards into a gaping hole in the floor which is how that whole sequence played out for me. And did we ever uh, get to... Hold on, I'm going to try a quick clip real quick because I want to see if this is an example of the kind of speech that I was talking about. I tried to find the clip by Neely Fuller, but let me see. Let me see. I think this is the one. Hold on. A so-called black female victim of white supremacy. And she says that the more she has been studying racism, white supremacy, and she's heard some of your lectures, she began to see... Uh, black males as pathetic, and she she began to better understand uh, the powerlessness of being a black male in a system of white supremacy. Um, what would your uh, your view uh, on that be? Uh, black females, or just black people in general, um, viewing one another as pathetic uh, under the system of white supremacy? Well, what I wrote in my book was. The description of uh, all of the non-white people on the planet under the system of white supremacy and the the word that would fit all the victims of racism would be pitiful, meaning there were to being pitted, That's, which pathetic would mean approximately the same, I imagine. But that, that's an accurate description of people who have been rendered completely helpless and dependent uh, by a hostile force have become a pitiful people, a people worthy of being pitied and who need help. That would fit all of the people who are subject to the system, a system that is hostile to them, a system that also uh, is... Uh, incorrect. In other words, it's not a justice system. It's okay for people to be subject to someone. I I don't like to use the word subject. I mean, I would say uh, in a cooperative sense, uh, all people are kind of dependent, you might say. That's the best word. It's okay for people to be dependent on someone as long as 
system of white supremacy. system of white supremacy is a hostile system. So anybody who is subject to that system is a victim of hostility. And they are dependent on that system. They are in a pretty pitiful state. And that is the condition. And all of the evidence shows this. I'm sorry, that was a bit of a long clip, but what Neely Foote is trying to say, that wasn't the exact clip I want, but uh, the clip I was looking for is one where he says, you have to be honest about the state you're in to get out of it. But he also says, and this clip did have the part that I'm talking about, where if you notice, he keeps saying a system or it's an unjust system or it's an oppressed system. And this movie kind of didn't say that. It said the pitiful state part. Like, it would be like that exact clip, but minus all the critique of the system's role. It just kind of makes Mm -hmm. the pathetic, pitiful state a kind of internal, self-created type of thing. It's an individualist narrative. And that's that's a big thing, I think, in a lot of American movies where, you know, the, the struggle is with yourself. And even the struggle that is exist that is that is um that exists outside um outside of you, you only can deal with it if you come to terms with yourself in this weird way. And it's very it's actually just not true to the world. And I think that's why I struggle with the film because things didn't add up. He's having it's supposed to be the last black man in San Francisco. There's this huge issue that's happening in San Francisco. But I guess the only way for him to deal with the issue in San Francisco is to be honest with himself about the fact that his granddad never built the house and that his dad was basically <laughs> a junkie and he just he lost it because of his own negligence. I actually found that rather an an, an insulting idea yep. to make a film about. Yeah, and I I, I agree with um, that. Yeah, I want to ask. I want to ask something too. Is I feel like uh, you said it, when Neely Foote's clip there, he's portraying like this picture of like patheticness, but he doesn't make it look like an inevitable natural force. Right. Which is why I think the problem with this movie was where it's like you know a lot of uh, white liberals like to picture this idea of uh, racism without racist. Like you know, right? We have this racist system, yeah. but it's just because a bunch of people are kind of negligently or carelessly or thoughtlessly contributing to it and somehow it's kind of like a bunch of people um each of them casually throwing a gum wrapper or something and next thing you know you have a big landfill and no one individually was aiming to say hey let's just fuck up everything and make a big <laughs> landfill but a bunch of people's individual negligence was causing something right. and i feel like that's kind of the problem with this movie is that it acts like gentrification is just a normal right. naturally occurring inevitable event right not something that's by design and like not something that a bunch of people plan to do and that these people's problem was that they just weren't keeping up or or doing what they had to do the same way as someone who leaves the house but forgets to check the weather and right. they get rained on right it's not the same as if when they left the house somebody poured a bucket of water on them it's it's their negligence or like you know or when they have all have people like when they had those people in the streetcar and they were listening to like to the uh to the jefferson airplane song um <laughs> which i thought was which, which i thought was like funny in my head but they 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 disconnect everything they make them like they're these almost these ethereal ghosts situations yeah. and they they, they disconnect the, other. them from the others right and they disconnect from mm-hmm. the fabric of the actual place right and it all becomes kind of vagary to the point where like you just realizing that you know oh it's just stuff out there man and like i just get comfortable with myself i'll be okay man if i just roll right. off in the boat at the end and just leave it all behind I'll be okay, man. Yeah, the struggle is individualistic and the solutions are individualistic. It's it's like even the gentrifiers are just people who are just... That is such a good point. Pursuing their Mm. own individual lives and pursuits and accidentally like disenfranchising people is what I felt. Because even that real estate broker ends up being kind of sympathetic and a chill dude. He's just doing his job. There's, there's, I can't even think of any real bad guy. The no. worst was just thoughtless. Like, you know, right. like the white girl is a little bit insensitive. And even her friend, even they're not really villainized because you, you get to see one of them kind of realize. And she kind of feels bad. Yeah, this is kind of goofy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them was clearly shown to feel bad at the other ones. Yeah. His word at least struck one of them. It was very clear right. not all of them are bad. Yeah. You know, they're just doing the best they can. They just need educating. And uh, you know, though, like, I'm, I'm sorry, Sorry, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, um, into my, uh, uh, please continue. Yeah, another another aspect that I think kind of added into it that that bothered me, and I think what the individualistic thing was the kind of the conversation that was happening around black masculinity in the movie. I found very, yes. I found very belittling because, and I, we can start with the brothers on the block, right? And you know, the movie had so many n bombs for the first thirty minutes, 
that I was just like, what is this caricature of black street people? I still want to speak on that. That and it was wow. it was really it was really <laughs> bothering me. And I'm watching it. And I remember I had said to both Millie and T, I said, after we had finished watching it, I was like, you know, when when the movie was, was starting and we saw these guys on the street, I was like, all right, this can work for me if I discover these guys exist in the writer's head, in his in his in his best friend's head, and they are caricatures of what he thinks of black people that he doesn't associate with. And then you later realize that he's putting this negative spin on black people from, you know, who who may hang out on the street corner. But then when I realized right. this was supposed to be the realistic depiction of black men i was like this is ridiculous and this idea that we are so struggling with our masculinity and we we are and i'm like i mean it's i'm not saying that there isn't issues with with masculinity and and feeling strong but it's a much more deep nuanced multi-dimensional conversation than these cliches that the film presented to the point where I I felt like the stereotypes that are out there they were actually confirming and I think and I think right. it was it was really like black man get yourself together like there was a scene when the, absolutely after, after the brother got killed right and when they were talking about like you know what he meant to different people and the one one of his friends he said something like I, I should have helped him more I should have looked out for him yeah. and I was like that's not why he got shot he got shot because um, was i too hard on was, was i too right. hard on him? Right. that's why he's dead right. that's not why he's dead he's <laughs> dead because black people die in this system that's what happens it's fine you know what man it's it, you know and it was that- it was really just it was it was bothersome but i think it it, it ties to the, i think the whole thinking of the film because jimmy at the end right. of the day the reason why jimmy and what was his friend's name i forget the the writer um, Monty, the reason Monty, why yeah. jimmy and mont are able to kind of move along is because they're able to accept who they are in themselves and 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 move and be different which i also found a little weird too there was like this difference angle that like they're better because they're different which made me question the right. writer also and i was kind of like what do you did you really hang out with these kind of black people maybe you exactly. were bullied or something who knows i was kind of like uh, but yeah, so the whole framing of the film was very bothersome for me. And that's kind of why I had an uncomfortable time. And I felt they were using beauty aesthetics to kind of, you know, like like Millie and 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 had and actually everyone had mentioned about the the the, the beautification of the film. And I find I find this right. a lot in black movies now where they're using these kind of beauty aesthetics to like like put on top is some kind of like nice wallpaper for black pain stories. And it's it's Dude. it doesn't work for mm-hmm. me. What Bravo, are we romanticizing? Man. Right. Absolutely. You know what? Um um and, and to me, you there was so many great things you said, man. And one of the things that I want to really hit on is that for one, gentrification is sort of at the center of this story, right? right. But it does but when you're for people who are living in San Francisco, the reason why that they're being gentrified is because of tech. Yeah. Let's just keep it real. Tech is driving up the rents. Tech is allowing these people to come in, buy these places, these landlords, they're getting greedy and they're booting people out. People aren't losing homes because uh, because they mismanage money. <laughs> That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Two, I so you guys, I saw them. I saw the movie in a theater where it was maybe me and like four and, and like four of the black folks. Right. So, you know, when the guys on the corner were constantly dropping the M-bomb. I was a little you know, like I just I I don't feel good about seeing a movie like that around. Right. So you're around to clarify, you're people. saying Same. five just, black people in a room full of white people because that was our experience too. I yeah, think. it was. So see a wide audience. So I mean, it's like you know I didn't feel uh, I didn't feel good about it, and it was something about like I'm pretty sure that guys similar to that. It, exist but it was something about they were just as matume said they were caricatures they were these to lack of a better term they were super niggers right mm-hmm. and and it was one of those things where it's like this is what the the liberal white the bill maher liking john stewart watching you just i, I mean this is how they view they view black folks and it was just this you know um Again, uh, Matuma, you you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about the the masculinity. It's almost like it pushes this trope of toxic mas- 
masculinity and it almost always lands on black men Mm -hmm. and these men are the face of it and it just so happens that you it's i guess he wanted to contrast them with with monty and jimmy but it just like those kind of black folks they wouldn't even interact with uh (laughs) with each other like uh like that you can be the cool skater black dude like Jimmy was, and he would never be accosted like that around uh, around the hood dudes, or a or just keeping it real, a dude like Monty would never even be around dudes like that. So I'm just yeah, thinking like that part just true. wasn't real. Sometimes what's weird to me, right, is I feel like, and we said the exact same thing after the movie, and it makes me feel good that you kind of uh, felt the same way. Like we were saying, there's several ways they could have interacted with each other that would have rang true, and and we we were saying one way could have been like they would have viewed him as like a weird curiosity and maybe been like look at this dude get the fuck out of here you know and and you know whatever or they would like if they were real assholes they might have like you know fucked them up or scared them off but there was this weird middle zone that really didn't ring true where they were kind right. of it was unclear whether they were meant to be thugs or just because I think for, I, yeah for clowns because i think i think for a lot of um white dudes outside the black community they kind of flatten like street dudes into just one giant monolith. Whereas someone who kind of understands the black community can understand like these are guys that hang on the corner, but they're just underemployed guys who live at their mom's house who just kind of just hang out in the corner and uh, maybe sell a little weed or just hang out or they do odd jobs or they work part time or whatever. But then there's these dudes on the corner, but these dudes are like actual killers and criminals, you know? And like, not everybody is the same. Like, two types of people could be in the on the corner, but they're two totally different type of dude. This movie, I think, lacked that nuance. So you get this weird, contradictory stuff where at one point I thought they were just gonna be like the bullies in house party, right? Like, you know, they're kind of thuggish. But the bullies in house party, you never get the idea that they're moving weight, that they're um, ever gonna kill somebody, that they're headed to a life of like you know twenty five to life or something. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, are these guys the full force house party bullies or are they like you know king of king of new york or or uh boys in a hood type of actual gangsters and stuff and i (laughs) and i couldn't understand that so at one point i've resigned them to being clowns especially when they don't beat up montgomery or they kind of humor him to a degree i'm I'm thinking okay these like the full force guys if they were just you know not motivated to beat up kid in house party and suddenly it's, it's like they're talking at the end of the movie about, yo, he died. I think I pushed him too hard. So I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What were you guys into on that corner? And none of it rang true. It was just a collection of lazy tropes that I think contradicted each other that I think needs a certain disconnect from black life to even conceive of. Does that make sense what totally. I'm saying there? Yeah. No, yes. thanks for that explanation because that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I mean, all I know is that during our screening, you know, whenever those kids came on, the whole audience uh, burst out uh, laughing. Yeah. So uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. It, it really did. It kind of made me feel like, well, that's what they were. These characters were designed to do. They were designed to make an a white audience laugh. And that I found to be really disturbing. And um, it just made me worried, honestly, as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, because when films like this do well, you know, when win awards at Sundance and are critically well received as this film has been, uh, it just makes me think about how great it would be if moving forward, people of color were able to make successful films that had nothing to do with validating a white point of view. But it also makes me wonder if that's even possible. Yeah, no, like um, I never thought about uh, the fact that those guys could be put there just as a comic relief. I mean, T, like that they could be the house party thugs, right? Yeah, but it's funny because the house party thugs were there to be comic relief, but house party felt like it was a kind of for us bias thing. So it's rings differently because it's not like really... um, mean-spirited and plus there's balance to and it everyone's a joke in house party you know the, the, you're exactly you're, everyone is a joke of themselves in, in something like house party while this film and, and, and house and house party is not pretending to give a 
larger commentary right. on anything societal too. You and know? there's always this, an, an inherent feeling that Jimmy and Montgomery have more integrity and they've discovered more integrity. And, you know, there's things in movies like that. And this, I, I, this actually not just in black movies. You see a lot of movies like this where the special people, the special individuals or the outcasts. And there's this kind of becomes the, this revenge against the, uh, the people who maybe who were had more popular or who were more tough, you know? And yeah, it, but, but especially there's a type of black person that rebel in there totally. like the title the creator or the Easter ray types totally. where it's kind of like any person who said at some point and ironically like you know i had it extra hard because i was too black for the white kids and too white for the black kids it it, it kind of felt like that was uh the undertone well he said it to, the, fa- the father said it right he said what do you got with that skateboard what, what, what's up with all that you still, you still rocking that skateboard and i was like oh this is what he's yeah, about right. so we're doing this in this movie oh okay. and it wasn't even organic it wasn't even organic the way uh you know he said it like like there's so much other things to worry about like do you have a job where are you living right, <laughs> what are you doing? right exactly like, the skateboard was his how uh, are you first co- <laughs> yeah exactly and i could say the rest of his life was together and then you're picking the skateboard but it's kind of funny like you, you don't see your son for a while you don't know where he's living you haven't seen him for months and your primary concern is a skateboard it didn't really feel right um and on top of that like the dad was the, the dad was living in an sro selling bootlegs right fam no one really does that any anymore to uh to keep it real with you uh um, especially the internet exactly <laughs> um and for two chinatown they have that um on lock so it's like you're done bro just Exactly. Yeah, even that, even that hustle is gone. Either someone is still getting those bootlegs, but getting them from Chinatown, or they're just getting a jailbroken fire stick. <laughs> right. You know what I'm C- saying? Cody, yeah, right, like, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Just doing a Cody. It's a, it's um. But that's another tropey type of thing that this thing, this thing had. You know, like it kind of reminds me of. Uh, I saw this play, and this is another play that white liberals loved as being like authentic, and it was uh, Susie Laurie Parks, oh. uh, Top Dog, Underdog, oh, yeah. and I. And I saw that movie when it, I saw it, not movie. I saw that uh, the play Broadway when it first thing, came. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I saw it on Broadway. And I remember so did I really I. didn't like it because, because first off, and this is before I really had the more involved thoughts I have about this type of stuff now, where it's like, what are white liberals getting out of it? Who is this for the white gays? I didn't really have the vocabulary to kind of break down why it was bothering me. But I remember it not ringing true. And one of the problems that bothered me in the movie was their hustle was three card Monty. And I'm like, come on, the 2000s, this is your street hustle like right like 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 what do you mean three card like he's the king of three card mount monty in like 2004 like it's not something people are doing i'm like this is like some old like i watched some black movie where we're talking about jive suckers and you know jive turkeys and <laughs> there was a three card monty scene in there and, and, and that's what they do in the hood right yeah okay it's fine put it in there and it was weird to me because it's by like a black woman and i don't know what her background is but i just remember it just read very insincere and then plus most deaf was in it and he was doing his um street voice that the same way he did in like 16 blocks is that what it's called right, like oh, yeah. most deaf has like the worst street voice <laughs> like it works when he's gangsterlicious because that's a cartoon but then you see him in a serious movie doing the same gangsterlicious voice yeah. and you're like wait a minute he's not trying to act like a cartoon that's how he really thinks uh thugs talk is like gangsterlicious from the boondocks but this thing kind of had aspects of that where it's like the tropes are outdated even they're not even just like bad tropes or right like anachronisms yeah and i just couldn't tell once that guy actually died i remember really any type of forgiveness i had for the caricature of those guys just went down the tubes because now i'm like wait these guys are meant to deliver serious commentary at this point like you said in house party at least everybody was a joke from beginning to end and there was no real it would be like if house party at the very end turned into uh boys in the hood <laughs> where um ricky's getting shot you know it's like wait a minute what just happened i thought we were watching kid, kid gets shot house at the part. end of it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and a kid gets shot by full force. Exactly. But tonally, tonally, the first two thirds of the movie are exactly the same. He <laughs> just it ends with increased the piece. This movie had that type of jarring shift to me. That was yeah. weird. Now that because, I think about it, it really yeah. did come out of nowhere. I, I didn't feel like that was some sort of inevitable conclusion for that character. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Like, like they were so kind of comical. Like, it was just weird that that consequence hit them, and it just didn't really uh, work to me because the rest of the movie was very Wes Anderson-ish, but right. with black people. You know, like, um, I actually thought that the character that died, he was going to, I mean, I, I felt that maybe Monty liked him 
And it would have been really more sort of daring if they would have kind of explored that because was was that the only person that thought Monty was queer? Oh, I totally thought he was queer. And yeah, I think there were yeah, a I totally thought so too. Right. It's kind of weird because this, this movie was totally unsubtle in places where it could have stood to be subtle, like, you know, the, the thug characterization. But the queer thing, which I think could have stood to be a little more explicit, they right. went really almost too subtle on that. And it was like the only th- uh, the only sort of quote unquote queer thing that they had was the naked man and the Castro. And I mean, that's an easy one, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think they also were kind of trying to hint. And this is kind of more of that whole toxic masculinity stuff. I think they're kind of trying to hint that maybe uh, the one who died who was played by Jamal True Love, which I thought was a kind of stunt casting that I'm not sure if I like or dislike. I'm very kind of yeah. torn on it. But uh, Jamal True Love is the guy that was kind of he was framed by um, Kamala Harris's DA's office for a crime he didn't commit and serve time. He's one of the oh, people word? that they like, yeah. they like to use. They, they like to use him as one of the examples of what a bad prosecutor uh, Kamala Harris was. And he got, he got paid $13.1 million by San Francisco for uh, how badly he was treated. He spent six more than six years in prison for a 2007 murder before being acquitted in a 2015 uh, retrial. And they cast him as the guy. And that's the kind of... St- casting that bothers me because I'm like I'm like first off now you have me feeling conflicted because you gave a guy who needs a job a movie but I mean you gave him a role but were you doing it you know just to make yourself criticism proof was it just to win mm-hmm. some cool points with white liberals because a lot of white liberals were aware of the Jamal True Love story I I, I read it from a lot of uh, yeah yeah from uh, like NPR and those things he's He's one of those cases that kind of made it into the, the mainstream and stuff. And I felt there was something like a little bit unfair about that. About because now that you put him in there, now it feels also more like a commentary. Like now that I realize it was him, you know, are you just hiring him because he's a the best actor? Are you hiring him because you're using him to make some kind of point? If you are making kind of point, then what's going on? Why are you just using him to play like a house party thug and like I don't understand what the statement of casting him was like i was and then i also felt like are you just using him to make yourself criticism proof in general a problem i have with this movie was that it takes care with a lot of details like a lot of brushstrokes like for example the queer naked guy and which felt real and like you know little touches like like the like the like the black street preacher who was talking in the beginning i thought his speech was actually pretty good even though i didn't like that they had them kind of clowning it and clowning him yeah. and not listening. But I thought the words were good. Like, there were nice little brushstrokes. But when I stepped back enough and tried to look at the full picture, I kind of realized, wow, it was just a bunch of nice brushstrokes. But the picture is actually an incoherent mess. It's, <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't see what the picture is. I just was so busy looking at strokes. <laughs> right. I wish they'd done something with that preacher character. Yeah, exactly. I thought, I thought for, for example, yeah. so did I. I thought maybe they were going to realize that they were kind of clowns and he was right and, you know, appreciate mm-hmm. him. And that didn't happen. Well, we had talked about it. I said, I, th- I thought I was hoping the film would be like a fever. We would the the film is a fever dream about 30, 40 minutes in. Right. And then I realized right. it wasn't. And like, so like when the, the use of the preacher and all these monologues and we seeing the, the, the toxic waste, it was all wasted. I was like, you could have made this actually into a really poetic thing, but you're actually using all these kind of poetic stylings in these empty ways just to kind of cover Absolutely. up the fact that you really actually don't actually have that much to say yeah so that's the end of part one come back next episode for part two we hope you enjoyed this and we hope you enjoy the next part even more take care